Welcome to Last in Line Podcast, where we are highlighting, showcasing, and spotlighting great leaders of faith who have overcome adversity, cultivated resilience, and served others in a significant capacity. So settle in and be encouraged by this episode of Last in Line Podcast. On May 15th, 2011, as the sun rose above the Himalayas, I made my final few steps to the summit of Mount Everest. I was completely alone with nobody above 26,000 feet, just me and the mountain. I made a radio call down to let others know I made it and then took some selfies before getting a drink and a snack. It was a lot to process in that moment, and I would say I'm still processing it to this day. It took over a month to reach the summit, but I only had a short time to enjoy it before heading down. I checked my gear, took a few more looks around, and then started my descent. That's when things went wrong. A few yards into my descent, everything went completely white. I went snow blind. That's a quote from the book, number one best-selling Amazon book on mountain climbing. authored by our guest today. His name's Brian Dickinson. Brian is an adventurer. He's an author. He's a speaker. He is a former U.S. Navy aviation rescue swimmer. Um, As a survival expert in the Navy, uh, he delivers some of the more powerful experiences from the stage as he speaks. Uh, His story exemplifies what it takes to face adversity to overcome impossible obstacles, to uh, he he leaves audiences inspired and motivated to conquer any of their greatest fears. But in 2011, as I just read from you, he soloed the summit of Mount Everest, but went completely snowblind on the descent. Basically, on the way down, had to go hand over hand, blindly and alone, and what should have taken three hours to reach what they call high camp ended up taking seven hours. Brian took a major fall uh, down the South summit and eventually ran out of supplemental oxygen, but through determined faith and focus, he survived the impossible and his life was spared because many, many people don't make it back. And it's hard enough with your eyesight and to go with little to no visibility is unfathomable to me, to people outside the circle of mountain climbing and adventuring, as you call it, mountaineering. So that's our guest today. I don't know what else I can say. This is actually one of the more compelling, intriguing, and interesting stories that I think we've brought to Last in Line podcast, and we've had some amazing guests, but I can't wait for you to hear the story of Brian Dickinson. Welcome him to Last in Line Podcast. Brian Dickinson, welcome to Last in Line Podcast. Thank you. Man, it's good to meet you. Um, I, I've had a lot of guests on the show, a, a really big name guest beyond anything I could imagine, and uh, former NFL players, uh, former Navy SEALs, guys who were interrogators during the uh, capture of Saddam Hussein. I've had just crazy celebrity type people that I would never, you know, I certainly am not entitled to 
have a conversation with, but I got to tell you, and no pressure here, but you might be one of the more interesting stories that I've ever had in just over 300 episodes. And I, I think it's amazing what you went through and we're going to get to that, but I'm just honored to have you here, man. I don't, I don't know how we made this happen. I don't know how I got lucky enough for you to just say, sure, man, I'll be on your podcast, but your story is incredible. And I'm, I'm appreciative of you being here. Thank you. Um, you're a man of faith. I'm a man of faith. This is a faith podcast. I think I found your stuff on you version. Actually, you've written some devotionals. Um, you wrote a book called blind descent and we're going to get into that because that, I mean, that whole story is crazy, but you've done a ton of interviews. You've been sort of a, like you said, I don't know, a, a correspondent, pseudo correspondent, whenever things are going on, on Mount Everest, they reach out to you to get your expertise. Um, you're an author, you're a speaker. I, I did a lot of pre-recording of your background, but is there anything you, you want the audience to kind of know about you that might not be in print somewhere that might help us? get to know you real quick? Um, well, after the hype that you just threw at the audience, um, I guess I kind of bring <laughs> it down a level. I'm not all that. I'm human. Um, I've just been put in some interesting scenarios, been able to survive and, you know, just really just blessed to be alive. You know, I've spent six years in the Navy as an aviation rescue swimmer. So jumping out of helicopters and, you know, rescuing down pilots, all that fun stuff couple of deployments to the Persian Gulf and I'm uh I'm married, have two kids, two dogs, a tarantula, a boa constrictor, and a lizard. Mm. Wow. <laughs> just normal stuff. That's normal. Yeah, just run of the mill. Well, <clears throat> forgive my ignorance when I ask this question, but Navy rescue swimmer, I mean, is the movie with with Kevin Costner, Guardian, is that movie similar to what you did, or is that a whole different thing? And how realistic is that? Was it pretty, pretty on point with what you do? Of course, it's extreme for Hollywood, but was was it pretty real? Yeah, yeah, no, they did a good job with that. Um, so that was Coast Guard, I'm Navy. Okay, that's right, that's right. When when I went through back in the early '90s, um, the Coast Guard went through our school, so like they didn't have their own, then they spun mm. off, and you know, so. The Navy had the the rescue swimmers prior. Um, so they're doing amazing things. You know, they mm. protect more of the shore. So our our mission sets are a little bit different. Okay. You know, we're deploying out, have a, a lot of different jobs. They end up getting more rescues because of just the proximity to the coast and stuff. But our rescues are just a little bit different, you know, ejecting pilots, man mm. overboards, combat search and rescue, mm. uh, deploying, you know, special forces, Navy SEALs from the helicopter. So we do. A lot of that stuff, aerial gunner, anti-submarine warfare. I mean, it's it's kind wow. of that jack of all type of thing. So it's it's a, it's a exciting six years for sure. Mm. Just a, definitely Very saw cool. and experienced things that I think prepared me for you know climbing the highest peaks on the seven continents for sure. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I I mean, I see the list of your mountaineering and I'm going to butcher all the terms just because the vernacular escapes me, but I'm going to do my best, but your resume on, on all of the adventures and the climbs um, that you've been on, like Kilimanjaro, of course, like Everest, I've got a list of them here. I mean, just all the, it's crazy. Appalachian Sierras, Andes. I mean, you've done pretty much everything there is to do when it comes to that. Um, how, 
in the world did you become that? Like going from the Navy to that, like you just, are you just a thrill junkie or are you, did you have that list as your goals in mind when you set out or it just kind of happened? Um, no, I, I think God just wires us differently and it's, uh, there's, there's a lot less climbers than there are climbers. So, you know, there's, it's, it's easy for the the non-climbers to be like, it's nuts. Um, but just like anything, you know, the way that we're wired, there's, there's always things that people think you're crazy for doing, you know, which is just normal for you. And it's, it's the same for me. Like my wife is completely opposite than I am. So we kind of balance each other pretty well. Um, but you know, I was jumping out of helicopters and I got out and, um, started climbing and just decided to, to kick it up a notch and, you know, just, a a pretty cool way to live, to just, you know, go around the world and climb the highest peaks and just have that experience. But also, um, you know, I used it as an opportunity to visit orphanages and just, you know, share the love of God, you know, anywhere that I went. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's good and bad is tough because, you know, having two young kids and being gone. Um, but I also made the opportunity to bring them along whenever I could, like maybe after a climb down in Argentina, I'd fly the family down and we'd experience everything together. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, it's a win-win for everybody. I mean, you found a way to make it good on, on both sides. You get to experience that extreme kind of adventure. Uh, cause it's not every day that I, let alone talk to anybody, but meet people that is in as extensive to that environment as you are. Now, before we start going into the book and getting really kind of in the weeds on some of this stuff, because I, I do want to dig in more to just that ascent, descent, aftermath, all of that. But mm-hmm. I do something called life sentence, and uh, I'm going to give you a sentence and you're going to finish it for me from your perspective. Okay. So it's going to give us a couple, I got two or three here that are going to give us an idea just kind of behind the curtain about your, about you and your, your life and journey. So you up for this? Yeah. You up whatever. for it? You good for it? Here we go. I mean, <laughs> go you jumped it. out of, you jumped out of helicopters and been to Mount Everest, <laughs> top of Mount Everest. I don't what, think what's the worst I can, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. myself. I'm good. <laughs> I promise you won't go blind from this. Um, okay. All right. Before I joined the military, I wish someone would have told me. Um, Terry told me, um, I, I think back then just realizing just like the, the traumatic things that we go through as children that I would have dealt with that more instead of just throwing it in a box and, you know, waiting for 20, 30 years for things to unleash. I wish I had that kind of coaching or that guidance. Well, so you're leading me in down the road to ask what what do you wish you would have addressed? Uh, just everything. You know, I grew up in the 80s. I had, you know, I was a witness of alcoholism and abuse and just uh just you know witnessed a lot of things that kids shouldn't have to to witness or you know be a victim of. So just just all that stuff. A lot of people that get into traumatic environments or jobs, you know, typically come from trauma because then once you're in it, you unconsciously feel that you can now take control of it. So Mm -hmm. that made me a good rescue swimmer. 
made me good in mountains and, you know, saving lives and everything else. But at some, at some point you got to, you know, deal with all of that layer of trauma that you're just, again, layering on, even mm -hmm. if you're in control of it, now you're, you know, a part of it, you know, it can be, it's just, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon, I guess, but okay. you know, early on, I don't think I would have been mature enough to actually take that advice, but you know, it's, it's kind of like 20, 30 years, you're shaped a certain way and now better off because of it. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of pain throughout those years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is, were there any surprises when you, when you got into the Navy, uh, that you wish someone would have given you a heads up on kind of like, Hey, this is going to be a very, this is going to shock you, or this is going to be ready for this, or you wish you would have had maybe a cheat sheet. What was, what were some things going in that you were like, man, I wish, wish I'd have known this ahead of time that would have prepared me a little better for. Um, as far as the military. Yeah. yeah. If, if someone would have said, you know, invest in Microsoft or something, that would have been nice. But uh, <laughs> but as far as like the military, I think, honestly, I think ignorance is bliss and getting into those situations a lot of times, um, not knowing, not being able to prepare sometimes because it, it really puts you in a situation of where you are able to respond to see what you're truly capable of. If you're mm -hmm. anticipating that and planning for it, nothing ever turns out as is. Mm -hmm. And I think that could that could actually influence you in a negative way. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's That's like good. deployments and all that stuff. It's, it, it's difficult. There's, there's, you, there's no way you can prepare for it. It's kind of like mm -hmm. high altitude mountaineering. You can't prepare for the lack of oxygen. You have to prepare for the things within your control. You know, you train for that and then respond to the things outside your control based on your experience and training and knowledge. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. I like that um, because sometimes, yeah, if you give too much thought to something, it's not always the best. It's not always good to know ahead of time because usually like your reaction, your survival instincts come in to play on some of that. That's actually better than if you would have known about it ahead of time. So, no, I like that. Um, how about how about this one? OK, my most memorable moment as a rescue swimmer was. Um, there was just this a cool and it's, it's not, there, there's a lot of like different, um, mm -hmm. like interesting stories, but there's just this one moment where I had a medevac, had to pick up someone with a, out on a ship and, you know, we flew out, picked him up. He had, was having heart problems and, you know, I had to just monitor his vitals and we had to st stay pretty low in the helicopter just because fluctuation in altitude can, you know, cause cardiac arrest. And, but we landed at Balboa hospital, a Navy mm -hmm. medical hospital on the the landing pad, got out, the emergency crew came and, you know, took him away. And, and as I was getting back in the helicopter, I noticed that there was a little boy like hugging onto his mom's leg, like watched the whole thing go down. And he was just like, it, it was just one of that, those moments where I didn't realize I was being watched, you know, and I, I just looked at him and I pointed at him and gave him a thumbs up. And his, his mouth just dr dropped and he like buried his head. It was just like this really cool moment, you know, for him, yeah. but also for me, it was just like, it was neat to just have that, that influence, you know, is we're in that job, we're just doing our thing. We never consider ourselves heroes, but you know, we hear it all the time and, you know, you can definitely tell on that kid's face and I don't know, it's, you never know what would happen with that, that kid. Maybe he went in the military or, you know, it's, it's plant, a seed was planted. You just never know. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you never know who's watching. I mean, in life, you know, in general, like walking down the street, helping somebody, you never know who's watching. So no, I like that. Um, man, you, did you ever, I guess, was there a point where you were ever like, aside from the Mount Everest experience that we're going to get to, but as in the Navy, was there ever a point where you were literally fearing for your life? Like thought that you were like in a real jeopardizing situation and that you were just lucky to make it out. Do you ever have a situation like that or every situation was like that? I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like every, every flight, you know, it's, there's no standard flights for what we did because we, we would launch for, a lot of different things we were spinning up going through the the straits to get into the gulf and we got you know i have m240s on each side of the aircraft and we're ready to launch because we had scuds pointed at us and mm. i'm sitting there with a great grenade launcher so it's like there's always these moments of of fear and uncertainty and um there there was my first flight we crashed into the water like we we ended up pulling out of it but yeah there's a there's quite a quite a bit of those scenarios actually. Um, wow. I got left in Korea once and then on the Iraqi border got chased down by a, a gun, like a Jeep with a gun mounted on it. You know, we were able to take off and get out of there, but yeah, there was, there's a few different moments. How do you get left? <laughs> I just, I mean, it's not like a cab takes off without you. Like what, what happened there? There's only so much Korea? room. Yeah, yeah, there's only so much okay. room in the helicopter. So we had to come in and um, get some resources flying back to the ship. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll stay. And you know, I'm like 19 years old. And I'm just surrounded, but it, it was fine. Whoa. I mean, that's crazy, man. Um, you seem very kind of subdued for being as extreme in as extreme situations and some of the resilience it, and some of the fortitude it takes to make it through some of that. Like you just, I guess you just got this like quiet strength about you, but um, man, that's crazy. So we're going to get into some of that, but one more of these fun ones first. So one thing I want the next generation to understand about leadership is. Leadership. Yeah, that's interesting because they've seen good and bad leaders throughout life. But I mean, it's we're we're also in this this point in time where, you know, the the younger crowds coming through with a lot of information and you know trying to you know bypass years of knowledge and it, it does there there's wisdom with mm -hmm. age not always, but it's good to de decipher you know good from bad. Don't, um, you know, don't fall for what's being projected at you uh, in the media, but actually have a voice for yourself. But at the same time, have some respect for the leadership because it's not going to be long before you're in that role. So as much as you can learn and it's you don't have to be in a hurry, you know, it's that wisdom over time. And we, we learn so much more from our failures than our successes. They don't remember any successes in life. It's all these failures where you just like, you just yeah. go back to that over and over. It's like, oh, like embarrassing or whatever, you know, it's just immaturity or whatever the situation was, but you learned so much. Yeah. Well, I mean, this, this being a leadership podcast, we talk a lot about servant leadership here and, and being faith guys. We, 
you know, we know who the ultimate mentor and model was for that. And we, we all will fall short of that completely, but that's the standard. Um, did you have any good, um, I guess, qualities about leadership that you wanted to emulate growing up? Like, did you see that in people? I, I mean, military, I don't know, high school coaches, whatever, but did you, how did you, when did you realize what, I guess, servant leadership was or what the kind of leader you wanted to be was? Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I don't feel I did grow up with good role models um, besides my, my grandpa who lived across the Creek. And then while I was in rescue swimmer school, he ended up uh, trying to commit suicide, shot himself. So I had to take emergency leave and yeah, it was a, a whole, whole deal. It's in the book. Mm. Um, so it was a, a major struggle. And again, back to just trauma. So just like kind of layered on, um, but in looking back, you know, there's, I, I was taking the approach of what a bad leader is and then do the complete opposite. So I was overcorrecting, which is a little unhealthy because any pendulum that's pinned to one side is it's too extreme. You can't, you, know, you got to figure out where that middle ground is. But I, I did have like a soccer coach who just the quality he had is he just, he loved the kids. You know, like Jesus, you know, the two commandments, love God, love others. And when anytime you go beyond that, you've already went too far. If you can just get that piece down, mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine this world. Mm -hmm. If everyone loved God, loved others, boom, happy. <laughs> like that's, you're going to have people that want to follow you and, you know, they can tell that you know, you're encouraging them and that you do actually care about them. Like that just goes such a long ways instead of just barking orders or, you know, having a militant style of, you know, fathering or, you know, leading a group. Yep. Yep. I mean, you're right. When the pendulum swings to the extreme of one direction or the other, you're right. It, it's still, even if you go the opposite of what bad is, you can still get extreme and, and there is a sweet spot. And, you know, it sounds like to me, like the way you're talking, you, you speak about layers of trauma, but it sounds like you've coped and dealt and gotten through a lot of that because you sound healthy. And I don't I haven't known you for more than about 30 seconds, but still mm -hmm. you seem like you've got a grasp about what is healthy, what's unhealthy and how to avoid layering the trauma and that, that needs to be addressed. But, and, and it is in your book, like you said, we need to get the book if we want to get deep into it, but how, how, how did you become a believer? Like talk about your journey of faith a little bit and how, cause I'm just going to try to fill in a lot of gaps here because there wasn't much detail and I'm not going to push, but doesn't sound like you grew up in a Christian home. It sounds like you were kind of at the end of your rope emotionally a lot of times. And so maybe you didn't have any choice, but to look to Jesus or did you have somebody that kind of said, Hey, this is the way to go. Talk about some of your faith journey. Yeah, it's kind of all of the above. I I grew up Lutheran. My my mom was Lutheran, so we we did go to church periodically, and you know on the holidays and stuff. It just got less and less, and um, I wouldn't say the experience was great. Um, wasn't wasn't horrible. It was something, but it just I, I think because it wasn't modeled appropriately in the family, it was kind of one of those almost like a daycare type thing. Um, the good thing about the Navy or the military in general during boot camp or basic on Sundays, if 
you can either go to church or you can like clean or something, you know? So it's like <laughs> the churches are filled. So every <laughs> Sunday I was there. Um, so it's just, you know, seeds there being planted, you know, it's been planted and now it's being a little, little bit watered. Um, but I did have a couple of good friends that I went through all the hard schools with and was deployed with that were, had strong faith, you know, grew up in very healthy, you know, stronger faith environments than me. And they were very influential. And then I'd met my now wife back in 95 and we couldn't be more opposite. And, um, we argued a lot, you know, it took six years before we actually got married. But the one thing that bound us was a small Southern Baptist church that we just went to. And I mean, it was like, we were the youngest in that church by like, I don't know, 40 years, you know, we were, everyone mm. was like, they didn't have gray hair. They had blue hair. Old, you know, it was yeah. like that old, old school. Yeah. But it's, it's the one thing. And, you know, in a relationship, when you are focused on yourself or even each other, you're missing the mark when you can both focus on God, then it, your lives come together because now you have this common goal and the selfishness is removed and it's, it's impossible. Right. But that is the goal. So you continue and you fail fast and then you fail a little bit slower, but mm -hmm. eventually you create these habits where you're aligning each other's goals with God. And, you know, it just, it was a process. Um, but it's just, it's been a journey and, you know, I'm not perfect by any means and I'm still learning, but, um, but it, that, that's definitely been, been huge for me. And we'll talk about Everest and, you know, yeah. the tangible experience I have there, but yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. No, I, I definitely want to get a background on your faith because, uh, you know, a lot of people have different ways they get there and, um, it's always good to just hear kind of some people get there just kind of at the end of their rope, right there at the bottom, they're circling the drain and somebody kind of throws them a lifeline or they just mm -hmm. get to the end of themselves completely and figure it out, uh, where, where the answers are, but that's a good man. Um, all right, well then let's jump, let's jump in, uh, both feet here. So, uh, for mountain climbing category, I guess, number one, Amazon bestseller, um, which is cool. Blind Descent is the name of the book. When did you actually, when was it published? Um, let's see. I climbed in 2011 mm -hmm. and climbing magazine was following me. So I had everything documented. Mm -hmm. Um, then I met my, my agent and then got connected with Tyndale house. So, so I'd, pretty much wrote it that year. And then it took another oh, wow. maybe two years to actually okay. get on, on shelves. So yeah, okay, it's good. A process. writing a book is, is interesting. Yeah. Uh, over and over. Cause I'm, I'm straight to the point, you know, my book would be like a page long if I had yeah. it. And editors are just like, okay, Brian, what were you feeling here? And like expanding it. So, so it's, it was good. It was good. That's good. Yeah. Process. I've self-published a few and that's probably the, and, and it's such a small scale. I wouldn't even begin to know what you're talking about, but I, I can guess that I wouldn't enjoy that. So I'll just stick with, you know, selling my 30 or 40 books and just be happy yeah. and self-published. But <laughs> um, no. So getting into climb, climbing and, and these adventures that you go on that aren't just a walk in the park, so to speak. Um, I, I wonder is your claim to fame more climbing Mount Everest or coming down 
with no vision. Like, I, I mean, those are two crazy feats and one, maybe not more profound or, or spectacular than the other, but I mean, bro, take us through. I mean, I don't even know where to start with you. You were going up and of course it takes a while, right? I mean, it takes a long time to get to the top of Mount Everest. Let's be honest, but there's a lot of different things along the way. Talk about some of the things you learned about yourself, maybe, and let's get general just on when did you going up? Like, did you realize, okay, I'm gonna have to dig a little deeper here. This is a little more extreme than I thought. I mean, you could have had it built up in your mind, but then reality surpasses all of that. So what were your expectations and how did it test you going up? Uh, yeah. So it, it is, it, it's an interesting thing. Like, I don't think most people think, Oh, I'm going to climb Everest. You know, I, I never really did until I got into mountaineering and put it on the list and then it becomes real so that you start researching it and really understanding, okay, what, um, what's this really going to look like? And in your mind, it always looks different once you get there. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh gosh. Um, but yeah, it's Mount Everest is at 29,035 feet. So same altitude major jet airliners fly at. So there's only a third of the air, third of the ozone up there. So mm-hmm. you have to acclimate otherwise you'll pass out and die. Um, but it's, it's a long process. It takes two months, um, just to get to base camp. It's 38 miles on foot and, you know, you're immersed with the Sherpa, which are the the local people there and going from village to village, carrying gear. And you have some Sherpa porters carrying some gear. Um, but then you get to base camp after about, I don't know, a week and a half and base camps at 17,500 feet. So I'm used to training on like a 14,000 foot peak here, Mount Rainier, which is highly glaciated. So you can get all the technical stuff done, but you know, this is like 3000 feet higher. And at that point I'd been on Denali once up in Alaska, um, got up to about 19,000 feet, had to turn back because of weather and went to Russia, climb Mount Elbrus, 18,500 feet, and then, um, Kilimanjaro 19 and change. So, so this is about as high as I've been. And I still had like, you know, two vertical miles to go straight up still. So it's, uh, you learn a lot about yourself, um, in those situations. And a lot of it is just the, the downtime, the patience, because you're acclimating. So you have to climb high, come back down, sleep low for a few days, and there's not much to do. And in our fast paced lives, there's, there's always stuff to do. And I had two young kids at that point. So I was doing everything I could to communicate with them and just, you know, stay involved as much as I can, but at the same time, stay mentally strong and focused. I was there, you know, there to, I was on a mission to, you know, safely get up and down and back. Um, But yeah, that's, that's one of the hardest things like physically, Usually, you know, I I was super fit. I wasn't as concerned there. You never know what you'll do, but I was as fit as I could be to either succeed or not. Um, The mental and emotional part is the hardest. And so you had to, um, I mean, just reading some of your devotionals and I I like how you kind of dip our toe in the water with some of the terminology and some of the technical stuff that goes with climbing and, and those kinds of things. And you talked about, the high altitude, what cerebral edema and, and pulmonary edema that you have to be concerned with. 
Now, mm-hmm. were you at risk of that at the at the nineteen thousand feet, or is that once you get up into that what you call the dead zone? I don't know if that's the that's same that, thing. Yeah. Am I am I way far off here? Yeah, yeah. Death zone's at twenty six thousand. Okay, um, so that's at high camp. So that's that's if if you cut your finger, it won't heal. Like they call it the right. death zone for a reason. There's only a third of the air, so you wow. can't stay up there too long. Uh, but no, way way below that, um, you can get edema, and that's okay. That's just where you don't have enough air. That's why you acclimate. So as you push yourself higher and you come back down, your body produces red blood cells, which carry oxygen. Okay. So then it's amazing how the, the body will respond to that, but That's you crazy. have to be patient and it's, it's miserable. Like when you're in those scenarios where you just do not have enough air and your body is just screaming, like, what are you, what is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you come back down a few days later you like feel pretty strong and you move up and you feel a lot better until you then push it to the next level. And it's just this process. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty painful. So in those downtime moments, like, did you, obviously you had a lot of time to kind of dig into, to your devotional time and, and your spirituality and kind of, I mean, I would assume you're praying every day, probably every minute of every day when you get to that point of like, okay, I don't know if I can make this. Talk about maybe some of the growth that you experienced spiritually. I don't know. Uh, that's worth talking about because, and we'll get to the to the part where you peaked mm-hmm. and and then things started to kind of unravel. But did you did you learn some things about yourself spiritually, or did you grow spiritually? Do you feel like is that even quantifiable? Yeah, my I don't know if my life first was at this point, but it definitely is now. Is Psalm forty six ten just to be still, be still, know that I'm God because. I had a lot of time to get in my own head and, you know, I'd get out and just walk around base camp, walk a mile here and there and do, um, I don't know what we had back then. We didn't have zoom or anything, but we would do, you know, like live chats with, um, sponsors or my church and, you know, just doing these different segments. I had a 3g connection, but I had to walk a mile out to find a direct line of contact. So I was able to get like a a family fix here and there. But throughout all of this, there was just, I had my Bible, I was just reading it and yeah, just having that time to actually, when there's nothing out there and you can actually listen and, you know, listen to what God is trying to tell you and then try to decipher that. <laughs> and and then we, the cycle of get in your own head. Yeah. It's like, um, I have a headache. God might be telling me I should probably like bail out of here. No, he wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Uh I so how long did it take you to get to the full twenty nine thousand to the top? How long? So how many it's a two month expedition. So that two first months. month is acclimating. So it's up and down and then waiting okay. for a weather window. And at that point, it takes about five days from base camp to get up to high camp. And right out of my view every day is it's beautiful, but the most dangerous area of Everest is right outside of the base camp. It's the Kumbu Icefall. So it's these, it's a river, a couple miles of just building sized blocks of ice that are just constantly shifting and falling avalanches kicking off. So I would leave usually around two or three in the morning when everything is just rock solid frozen and move as efficiently as I could. And this is where you see all the ladders, these Mm -hmm. aluminum ladders, like four ladders tied together and 
across these um, crevasses that are just bottomless. If you fall in, it's it's game over. Um, but yeah, it so yeah, it took a month to be in position, and then then I started making my summit push. So you start seeing the finish line. Well, at least half of it because you got to still got to get down but you get to the to the peak and you're enjoying life because you've accomplished this bucket list item that a lot of people will never experience and you were by yourself am i right mm -hmm. so yeah, you get up to there the, <clears throat> you're taking the pictures. himalayan database i'm one of two people to have ever had the summit on a given day to myself which was definitely not my intention. I had my, <laughs> One of two people, really? Yeah, I had my friend Pasong Sherpa with me, but he felt sick at about 28,000 feet. So we had a conversation and you live and die by these conversations. But in life, you have the information that you have and you make decisions. And, you know, we had the information. We both decided he would actually, he said he was going to wait, but he ended up going down to high camp. And I continued up and yeah, just completely by myself and yeah, making those, those last steps up the, you know, past Hillary step and past this cornice traverse and then actually seeing the summit. It's, it's a lot to process. It's a, it's a hard thing when you're in that yeah. moment, just being like, oh my gosh, this is. I, I bet. And probably the best cell phone service of anybody at that point. Right. <laughs> no, so you got, you got some good selfies. You had some to your writing of this moment. You're, you know, you're having some snacks, you're getting a drink, you're taking some selfies, you're soaking it all up, right. You're, you're trying to live in the moment and process it all. And not that any mind could ever process it fully where you're standing at that moment. But then I guess just I'm gonna I'm gonna let you flow with what happens next and then kind of take us through the next several hours. Okay. So yeah, I I made my way to the top completely alone. Um, took the highest selfie in the world, made a radio call, um, let people know where I was at that I was alone. And one of my friends and his uh Sherpa friend, Lakba, who had five summits at that point. You know, he asked him because I'd been climbing with him for the past month. He's like, how long is it going to take Brian to get down to high camp? And he's like, oh, Brian, probably maybe two, three hours. And then no one would hear from me for seven. So I I put the radio down and, you know, got a drink of water, a snack. And then you only have so much time, you know, on a, on a good day, maybe an hour up there. Um, but time just kind of stands still. I'd. I put all my gear and just knew I needed to, to head down because as soon as the sun comes up, things become very unstable. It's where avalanches kick off and all the anchor points can loosen because um, there's fixed ropes. So there's ropes that are attached to like ice screws and pickets and ice and rock different areas. So that's why I can solo. I have all my gear, my crampons, which are the spikes on my boots, my harness, which has two devices like carabiners that lock into the rope so that I can find my way down. Um, but I start moving down and within, I don't know, 10 or so feet, everything just went completely white. And I remember at that moment, just dropping to my, my knee, grabbing the rope and assessing the situation, realizing I was, I went snow blind. So I'm blind. I'm at the highest point in the world. No one's coming to get me. 
and I can either sit here or die, or I can get up and at least try to get down. And I chose the second. So I, I got up and I just, I started moving. And so with snow blindness, so I had a goggle malfunction the day prior where I had to rip an internal lens out. So that most likely cut their effectiveness in half. But with blue eyes being up with a third of the air, a third of the ozone, as soon as the sun banked off the ice, it fried my cornea. And typically it'll take about 24 hours to regain your eyesight. And I wouldn't regain mine for about a month and a half. So at what point were you, this is a dumb question, but how fearful of you were, were you that that was permanent? I, I never thought, so there's a lot of things that people will ask me like that. Like if I thought in the moment, I did not think of anything, if anything negative was trying to get into my head and cause panic, panic kills, I pushed it out. So I can say that's definitely military, mm. the training we went through um, that helped in this scenario. My wife that later, she uh, she was concerned that I was, it could be permanent. And even at that point, I hadn't even thought about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess I know that with snow blindness, it usually comes back. Um, so I just wasn't thinking that, but I just, I kept moving. Um, and is with snow blindness, it's everything is bright white. So it's not like black blind. It's so bright. It's like a light bulb being about an inch in front of your face. So you can actually move your finger in front of the light bulb and you'll know something just moved but you, there's no way you can focus on it. Yeah. And it just, it feels just like I was compared to potato chips, um, crushed up in your eyelids. Like you don't realize how often your, your eyes flutter and it's just, it's very painful. I definitely don't recommend it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I kept moving. The first major obstacle is this cornice traverse, which is, it's about, you know, a foot or two wide. And on each side of you, it is a two mile drop. So any wrong step, it's it's your last step. So just slowly, slowly, I was, I was trying so hard to use my eyes because I'm not normally blind and they just would not work. So I was forced to use my other senses. I could hear the wind, like 50 mile an hour gusts come up over the ridge and I would just hunker down and then it would blow over. I'd get up, take one more step. I'd hear the, the clinking of the carabiners as I'm clipping in and out of anchor points and then got to the top of Hillary step, which is a 40 foot rock climb. And I reversed my gear and tried to rappel down, ended up like stumbling a bit, pendulumed on the rope and hit the bottom. And I remember just laying there doing a self-assessment, like, am I broken? And I was just, you know, so grateful. Like as far as I knew, nothing at least didn't feel like it was broken. I was okay. So I got up, started moving. Still blind. Right. Still blind. I mean, we're, we're, oh, yeah. we're, I'm thinking this is dangerous with 2020 vision and you have no vision. So that's just, I'm trying to wrap my brain around it. Yeah. It's pretty intense. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this whole time, I just, I never felt alone. Like this whole time, I'm hmm. just walking blindly, holding with both hands the rope, you know, at a down, downward angle and just mm-hmm. making sure I'm not piercing my, my other feet with my, my spikes on my boots, my crampons. But I just, I felt this presence It'd be like, if you and I are in the same room and you close your eyes, you know, I'm still there. You know, even if I don't say anything, 
it's just this peaceful presence. I never overthought it. It was just like, it was there and got to, I had to climb up. So you actually, it's humiliating because you have to climb back up the South summit because it drops on the way. So I climb up that and then on the top of it, just lost footing. And I was just free falling. And that was the scariest thing I've ever felt. It's like, go up on your roof, close your eyes and jump off. It's just this helplessness, the rope shock loaded. And I'm at just a steep angle. My oxygen bottle is out of my pack. My mask is ripped from my face. I'm upside down. And where my heart is just jumping out of my chest. And I had to just calm myself, write myself, get everything back together. And tried to like side traverse over to like more of a rocky um, scramble. And the earth just gave out for me in a slab avalanche. That's where a sheet of the snow at certain angles will just release. And as soon as that went, I just, I grabbed with my, my leather gloves and it actually burned a line. I still have the gloves through my, through the gloves because the rope was going so fast. And, but I stopped myself. And again, just my heart is just ripping out of my chest. And again, I just, I'd never, I just felt this peaceful presence around me. It's almost like just someone was watching me. Um, so I what, ended up getting what altitude on. were you at at this point? It was just above 28,000 feet. Oh, so you hadn't made it very far down at all. And so, I mean, <laughs> you're, it's hard to breathe, but I'm saying it's, doing good. No, no, it's hard to breathe as it is up there. And then you've got oxygen issues. You're upside down. Your heart's about to beat out of your chest. Like you're up against it. Like every strike is against you basically for surviving. Yeah. That's what it felt like. And yeah, I could, I could also feel the frustration come through and I could also feel everything that goes along with frustration and, you know, basically panic inducing things. And I could feel that. And I had to continually suppress it because that's not a, an area you want to get into because mm -hmm. then you're, you're fighting that and you're not going to yeah. survive for long. So I got to 28,000 feet, which is where Pasong had turned back and I almost walked right past it. But he had left a, a spare oxygen bottle. So I should be running out soon. And it was just this bright oh, orange no. thing. And I walked right past like, oh, yeah. And I laid down next to it. And I was like fumbling with my regulator. And for whatever reason, it wouldn't work. Just I didn't have all day to troubleshoot. You know, I tried. It wasn't working. So I put mine back together. For whatever reason, I put the other 15-pound bottle in my bag in my pack and continued moving. I have no idea why I did that and got to the balcony halfway point to high camp, 27,500 feet and called out for Pasong. So where he was going to be, but he was gone. So I assumed he went down, which is totally fine. It's all survival. Um, but I remember being happy at this point, like I'd made it to the halfway point. The rest was just like 20 pitches of rappel. I'm like, I can do this. So I, you know, again, reverse my gear, start rappelling down and I don't know, like 20 feet into it, my mask just sucks into my face. And I just remember like ripping it off and just trying to breathe the thin air and I ran out of oxygen. So how that works is with supplemental oxygen, if you run out in the death zone, there's a high chance you're not going to survive. And at this point, I'd been climbing for 33 hours 
continually from the day prior to this point, completely blind and alone. I'd already lost 20 pounds just in this small scenario here. Mm. And at that point, I just, I dropped to my knees and I just, I prayed, I just surrendered at that moment. And around the world later is documented. My wife just felt the need to just wake up at this time and just lift me up. Uh, my good friend, same thing. I had people reach out later that I didn't even know that just felt a need to to pray for me. And all mm. I did was I prayed. I said, God, I cannot do this alone. Please help. And immediately it just, it just felt, it felt like someone reached down and picked me up. Like I was on my feet. I had this energy. I, first thing I did is I went for that other oxygen bottle to test it again. And I got a positive flow. And I remember taking five deep breaths and just the pain of air re-entering my body. It, it burned like my veins actually it burned, but I had life and I didn't overthink it. I just, I started put all my gear back, started rappelling down just as fast as I can, which is super slow, but still is like efficiently moving down the mountain and eventually got to about the last quarter mile to high camp and just looking out, can't see a thing. And out of nowhere, Pasong hugs me and never saw him comment, come in. He's Brian, you're alive. It's like, I'm so sorry. I leave you. And I'm like, don't worry about it, dude. And like, he <laughs> just stumbled back to the, the tent yeah. and I, Pretty much. I gave him my camera. I'm like, check out the summit pics, all that stuff. And, and I've passed out for about 15 hours where I was just, my eyes were glued shut and I was just out of it. I started wow. to get down the mountain the next day, but I was, I was with people and I was alive. Well, I mean, there's so many places to go in that story. Um, and, and I know it's, I know you, you say that you can't let that in and from your military days, you can't let those panic thoughts or negative thoughts in because it will actually pa paralyze you psychologically, maybe physically eventually. But let's be honest there. There's a time in there where you're like, okay, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it out of here. And then the oxygen, you get the positive flow. And in that moment, I'm guessing you're like, okay, I'm making it through this. Like that was your light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Like that's, that was the positive reinforcement you needed. And then you were, you were golden there. Um, wasn't exactly home free, but it was, it was a glimpse of hope. Um, yeah. man, is there a way you can parallel that experience to maybe something people go through? I don't know if it's, loss of a job maybe it's a terminal illness maybe it's a spouse that is unfaithful or a broken relationship i don't know a, a child that goes wayward what what in that resilience theme can you translate to people i guess without giving it away in your book cuz i'm sure you talk a lot about that but <laughs> do you, do you have anything for somebody that's listening that might be going through their i guess version of everest without oxygen yeah, it's it's tough because yeah, I'm I'm so blessed to to be able to be on stage and to to talk to people and you know the masses yeah. and just share my story, but I never try to share it in a way that it's like 
your Everest is my Everest because yeah. ev everybody has their own unique things and they're very real to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, I can tell you in my scenario, I had that peaceful presence. Jesus was with me the whole time. His hand was outstretched and I was trying so hard to do it on my own. Mm -hmm. And I reached a point where I couldn't. You know, Jesus is just cruising down. He doesn't need crampons. He's just like, yeah, keep going, dummy. Like, you got this. <laughs> He's like, You're, you you will come to me at some point. I've mm -hmm. already seen this play out. I mean, how people that are going through tough times, how much are they taking on themselves instead of releasing it to him? Have that peace, have that courage to do that and just see what happens. Because I think that's, things are going to happen either way. They're, they're, we're human. We're going to make mistakes. We're, there's going to be evil. Um, but how we respond to that and how much we try to take on, you know, we have some control over that. We have to, re, you know, have that courage to release it to him. Yeah. I wonder, thinking about your military days of rescuing people and you're requiring in order to help them, they've got to trust you. Like they've got to sort of let go of fighting against whatever they're fighting against so that you can bail them out of the situation. Right. And, and I think of people when they're drowning, like they're fighting the guy that's trying to help them. Right. And, um, uh, you're on the other end of that when you're on that mountain and you're having to kind of, like you said, let go of it, release it, trust fully. Um, did, I don't know, did, did being on the other side of that scenario, I know it's a different, um, context, but when you're the rescuer and you're needing someone to just trust you and let it kind of release, did you, uh, did that even enter your mind or did, did it make you better subconsciously at, at kind of yeah, letting go? Maybe worse. It's funny. I've, I've never thought of it that way. That's, that's really interesting because yes, our training was to try to encourage someone who sees us as flotation in the middle of mm -hmm. the ocean to calm down. We're here to rescue you. And it's, it's scary. I mean, whatever situation that got them into that or, you know, in that situation is, is very traumatic. They're in shock. Um, the helicopter coming in the rotor wash, it's, it's pretty hectic. It's loud. It's, it's scary. So I, I get that. Um, and you can't always encourage. And our next step was to actually induce panic. We would take them underwater to where they had to release mm. because they're trying to get to air. And then we would get control of them and then rescue them. I think I was probably so conditioned in my job to have control and, you know, be that rescuer when mm. I'm actually on the other side of it. My resistance was probably heightened. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Cause I mean, it, the, the parallels are kind of, I don't know. It's uncanny almost the more I think about it, but no, I, I think it's great that, you were able to get to that point because there was something in you that was transformed on that mountain. Like something inside you may have never gotten to that point. Had you not experienced that? Like, I don't know, spiritually, you may have never fully, I can't say for sure, but maybe you wouldn't mm -hmm. have fully gotten to that point of the end of yourself and surrender and, and totally relying on God. So that now when you're in life as a parent, as a husband, as a speaker, you know, somebody that people are looking to for answers, like I, I would think it's all, this is all very minor, you know, on what we're going through. Uh, everybody's got their own situation, but I think compared to what you had to deal with, trust in God is pretty, 
run of the mill now for you, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I still have to go back, you know, I've that one of the, I don't know, I guess the, the challenges of being a survivor, like a near death survivor is people want to hear about it. So it's, it's re-traumatizing, you know, I've been on a lot of TV yeah. and reenactments and, you know, I'm actually, there's interest in a, a full film. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just this thing and it's, it's a blessing because it is helping others, but it's, you know, if I didn't, if I wasn't able to be, I don't know, mentally stable and like deal with the trauma, it could and has been dangerous throughout mm-hmm. times, you know, to me. So it's, it, it's been a, you know, I've had a lot of mental and emotional, spiritual growth through this for sure. I have this, this thing I can go back to, but I am human as well. And a lot of times I can get like stuck in the, the stuff where I'm like, wait, um, here I am again, <laughs> trying to rely on myself. Jesus is here. He's always here. Yeah. <clears throat> now, I, I mean, I, I would think that for sure there's a film interest at least um, about something like that. Cause that's, that's, that's a unique, I mean, you're, you're probably one of one who's experienced everything you experienced that day. Um, man, I, I wonder too, you know, you're, you've come from a history of certain events that you call traumatic, and then you've lived watching others go through that in the military, and then you've experienced it physically. I mean, firsthand, near death yourself. Um, dumb question: How has that made you a better? How has that made you a better husband? I'm curious. Has it? Um, yeah, I think just from a. I don't think I used to be very empathetic. Mm. Like I, I grew up hard and, you know, it's kind of like if someone's dealing with something, it's like you compare it to what you've been through and it's like, get over it. That's nothing, you know, it's mm-hmm. this whole comparative thing. Whereas it's, it just helped me to be like you mentioned earlier, calm or whatever. I don't know that's just me, but it's, I'm, I'm not overly reactive. Um, you know, I think through things and, you know, think of the different scenarios and what, how does this play into God's plan? And a lot of it is like not taking the bait. There's just, everyone's brave behind a keyboard, you know, or whatever has an opinion. And it's like, I don't, it just doesn't matter to me. And I don't want to like downplay anyone, you know, what people are going through or anything, but it's sometimes it's just to have a calming presence to listen and maybe, reflect on it a, a little differently and give some perspective, you know, it's helped. So I don't know. I think in my marriage it's, it's helped, but we're, you know, we've been together forever and we have our ups and downs as well, but we're, you know, she's a Christian counselor. So, you know, we're, we'll, we'll go to a lot of like therapeutic conferences and, you know, different things together. So it's, mm. you know, we're, we're growing together. That's good. Cause I wonder, I mean, I know as guys we're we want to fix things and especially in your line of work where you've always been the answer uh, to certain problematic situations as a husband, that gets me in more trouble when I'm the fixer, or the, the, the solver, the problem solver. Right. So I would imagine that's been an adjustment for you too, is trying to become that just like you said, the listener and maybe not the fixer always. And just kind of the process sounding board type. Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's, there's certain things that I may want to do like around the house. And if I just do them, that's going to affect my wife, mm-hmm. you know, differently, you know, whether mm-hmm. that's rearranging stuff or, you know, different, whatever it could be fill mm-hmm. in the, fill in the blank. Um, but I think now it's, it's a matter of having that conversation and, you know, can you be a part of this? At least here's what I'm considering doing and, you know, just having, you know, just an open line of communication. So it's not like, Hey, she comes home, look what I did. And then it like causes anger or whatever else. Yeah. Um, what's fun too is um, because of this survival, because of my talks over the last 10 plus years, the biggest question I, I get is how didn't I panic? Because everyone would be like, oh my gosh, if I was in that scenario, I'd be dead or whatever, I'd panic. And that led me to thinking of another book. Um, that could help others. And it's actually already been approved by the DOD. It's already written. So now it's in the editing process. So it'll be out next next year sometime. But it's the whole premise. And my wife co-wrote it with me because I want to get both perspectives. Mm. But the whole thing is it's not a book about me, but it's a, a book about aviation rescue swimmers in the Navy. So there's hasn't been any books on it. And it's going back from the beginning days of the people that were picking up the Apollo 13 pilots when they came back mm-hmm. from space to Vietnam vets to, you know, Katrina mm-hmm. to current day stuff. And, you know, some of my own rescues in there too. But the whole goal is to abstract from our training of not panicking to help people that are panicking in their own lives. Mm. My wife's has, she's kind of caps well, she's kind of interwoven throughout each chapter, giving a counseling, a Christian counseling perspective. So it's, it, it's interesting. There's a, there's a lot of really cool stories that have never been told. So I'm excited for people to read those. And, you know, the goal is to, to help others that are having, you know, struggling in their life. We might fail fast with that one, but at least I have good intentions. No, I doubt, I doubt failures even in the cards on that. I mean, um, yeah, I'm surprised it got approved that quickly. Cause you know, I've had some spec ops guys from Navy SEALs who have written books, of course, and getting through DOD is, is a, oh, I know. is a it, big it took time like journey. Four months. Yeah. It was, it was a while. Okay. Well, I'm, I mean, I, that's good, man. I, do you have any kind of ballpark on time frame when you might have it written? Um, I know it's targeted out? for next fall. 2024. Oh, wow. So Very I don't know cool. if it'll be pulled in earlier than that or not. So, but it, cool. it's written. I just have to go through the, the brutal editing process. So <laughs> yeah, nice. looking forward to that. I bet I can tell. Um, <laughs> well, I guess give me some, I guess give uh, or give the listeners maybe a one last couple last shots here uh, far as um, when you talk about just taking one more step forward, you know, in your book and you talk about resilience and you talk about faith and focus and we couldn't get into all of that today, but um, just trying to get people to just kind of get up. And, and you said you felt like somebody had lifted you up. Obviously you were locked in and connected with your faith and, and, and God helping you, but guy, you know, talk to a guy today that feels like he's got landmines all over the place what what can you empower him with that will enable him to take a step forward today? Yeah, well, without knowing the specifics, sure, you know, it's, it's very difficult. But what I found a lot of times, and my latest um, devotional 
journey to joy on the U version is it was based on this premise because I, I always tell everybody this. Um, and a lot of times I got to tell myself this, but the, the hardest part is getting there, but you're always glad you did. Hmm. The hardest part is getting off, up off that couch or out of the house or whether it's exercising or I don't, again, fill in the right. blank. It doesn't matter yeah. what it is. The hardest part is getting there with social anxiety going out to a community group with the church or even just going to church because everything's online or going out with friends, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. You're, it's so rare that you're you're bummed after the fact. It's one of these, you come back and you're like, oh my gosh, that was, I needed that. Mm-hmm. You know, God created us to be connected. Didn't just create one human and uh, wander the earth by themselves. Like yeah. we're here to be connected yeah. you know, and, and to serve and- others. And it seems like we always blow it up bigger than it really is, too. Like, I think mm-hmm. we over-dramatize it or we over-magnify it and we blow it way out of... These hypotheticals that we paint in our minds really are senseless once we experience it. So, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. No, that's... That's, again, I'm I'm pretty simple. You know, love God, love others. Hardest part's getting good. there. Like, it's, it's good. figure out a reason to take one more step forward. Like, it's not... Not trying to oversimplify, but again, like you just said, we overcomplicate. So sometimes we just got to get out of our own way. Yeah. I love it, man. Uh, I love that story. I mean, I, everything you said today, I'm, I was just on the edge of my seat and I know it, the listeners were too. And we've got to get the book, um, read your you version devotionals. Those are tremendous. Um, like I said, that's how I found you. And and we will definitely put the link for the book in the notes. Um, is there any place else you want us to go uh, as far as any philanthropy work, any uh, organizations you're a part of or want us to get involved in supporting? Do you have anybody out there that you're representing at all? Um, I think the best place is just things are always evolving. So my my website is briandickinson.net and okay. I I'll always keep that up to date as far as the different things. Cause yeah, throughout the journey, it's, it's definitely evolved as far as the different philanthropy stuff and okay. orphanages and, you know, yeah. just different things that I've been doing. Okay. Well, good, man. Uh, been an honor to have you audience. He has been Brian Dickinson. We've been last in line. Be blessed. <laughs>